Okay, but here's my question. Who are the ladies? Avi, we're the ladies. Hi there. You're listening to the Lady Cast, conversations with women to inspire you to go out and do the thing. I'm Alex Laughlin. It's been a second since I've done an episode because I've had a crazy week and also like a crazy couple of weeks, but this last week especially has been really crazy. I taught my first podcasting 101 class at Lemon Bowl in DC and it was amazing. I was so nervous and I left feeling so warm and cozy and at peace and just feeling all of the community vibes, which is kind of what we signed up to do. I'm actually teaching another class at Lemon Bowl, the same class, next month on March 8th, I believe. Um, So if you want to sign up and learn how to podcast, you can do that. I think there's only like two spots left in the class, so you better grab your spot quickly if that's what you want. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can sign up. Okay, so this week's episode is very, very special. It is with my friend Hilary Matfess. She is my friend, but she's also an amazing, inspirational human being. Um, She's the senior program officer at the Center for Democracy and Development in Abuja, Nigeria, and a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies at the National Defense University. Also, she does a million things. She freelances a ton, she does contract work, and she's writing a book about gender and Boko Haram with Zed Publishers, and that should be coming out like uh, March, I think is what she told me, or sometime soon. Anyway, she is an impressive human being, and I am just so excited to share our conversation because I have sat next to her over the last year in coffee shops and just worked together. I've worked on the LadyCast and she's worked on all of these other really, really important things. And she's just endlessly inspiring to me. She moved to Nigeria like two weeks ago and I'm very sad that she is gone, but we have this great episode to celebrate her. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Hillary and let's get started. Your last name, Matfess. Matfess. Oh, Matfess. Yeah. Okay. It's a weird one. It's it's made up because when my great grandfather fled the USSR, <laughs> he was afraid he would be deported, and so he like made up a last name that sounded like American. We don't know. It's an anagram for fat mess, which was super cool growing up. Cool. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> okay, let's actually start, even though it's cool. been recording. Fantastic. Hillary Matfess, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is really exciting to have you because we've been friends for a while, but I have also always admired you in a professional capacity, so this is exciting. Uh, I am blushing and literally <laughs> just clutched my chest like the good Southern woman that I am. Uh, <laughs> so can you give a brief overview of what you do? Sure. So I work on security and governance with a hefty dose of gender in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, so that work has taken me to a number of countries, and I've worked with a a number of different companies. Probably what I'm best known for is my work on Boko Haram, which started out when I was in grad school with the Nigeria Social Violence Project, uh, which is at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, which 
you can just imagine the number of acronyms that uh, proliferate from that. But currently, I'm also writing a book on gender and Boko Haram that's going to be published with Zed Publishers. And I freelance to make up for any shortfalls in income that come from being a senior program officer or a research analyst. You do all the things. All the things. (laughs) It's actually amazing. I mean, I have talked to people about you, and you have been described as a prodigy. Oh, my. Have you ever heard that? Uh, Not from anyone sober. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this, but, like, you're really young, and you've done a lot of things. So when we're recording this, I recently turned 25. Ugh, we're getting super personal which we are. Um, I have lupus. My mom has lupus. Um, I've known that I have lupus since I was 13. Took five years to get a diagnosis and then probably another eight to get treatment, which turns out that I'm allergic to the treatment. Um, But my mom got lupus when or was diagnosed with lupus in her 30s, early 30s. And so that's always kind of been hanging over my head because all of my health issues started when I was 13. Uh, And it was one of those like, wow, that was 17 years early. So what's going to happen when I hit 30? Uh, Which really, nothing lights a fire under your ass like a a chronic autoimmune disease. Um, So like 30 is like the sort of Damocles above my head. Wow. Yeah. What? I feel silly for asking this, but like what are the side effects of lupus or like what what are the symptoms? So it presents differently in every person. Um, For my mom and I, it presents with thyroid disease, kidney disease. I got this super fun thing where um, I get ovarian cysts. And then when I'm stressed, my liver decides it doesn't want to process bilirubin. So I turn bright orange, which you can actually see now um, for an audio medium, probably raising my hands to show the orange flat of my palm is not helpful, but it was orange. And so when it flares, I get really tired, my joints ache, my organ um, function decreases a little bit. Uh, I'm really lucky because I'm super manageable, especially compared to some of the people that have to be hospitalized and on a ton of treatments. So I'm lucky, but it's absolutely such a frustrating thing to deal with because it feels like you have so little control over your body. Uh, and for a type A control freak, that is not great. <laughs> Scary. Do you feel like the fact that you haven't had control of your body contributes to your type A control freakness? Oh, absolutely. And I also, I can safely say I am addicted to exercise, which is probably a fairly healthy addiction. But in terms of addictions, in terms of addictions, um, and that is absolutely a byproduct of feeling like I can't control what my body does to the point that like, when I get bad news about my health, I know that I'm going to run after. And like, so doctors telling me that, oh, that's probably not the best for your joints or like, take it easy, be kind to yourself. I just kind of like nod and wait for them to be done with that because I know what I have to do is then like prove to my body who's boss, which is uh, obviously the healthiest way to interact with your corporal form. That's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, add in, like, your typical American girl body image issues, and I'm just, just, like, a walking ball of, like, I hate my body for all the reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's actually why I love distance running and yoga and sports, because it's it's a way that I can, like, look at my body and see what it can produce and what it can do instead of just, you know, its ability to undermine my kidney's 
ability to process protein. You know, like it, it gives me a sense of control and pride in something that just fundamentally disappoints me a lot of the time. So how old were you when you, start, uh, when you first started showing symptoms of lupus? I was 13. My mom's and my lupus is linked to our hormones. And so, like, I started menstruating, and then it just absolutely hit the fan. It was absolutely frustrating, um, and I would never, you know, like, wish a chronic hereditary autoimmune disease on anyone. But it really brought me and my family closer because it was something my mom had gone through. We shared all of our doctors until I moved away for grad school. I kept my, my family doctors even in college. And it prevented me from having I think a lot of the teenage freakouts about like my parents don't get me and they don't love me because once you've been hospitalized and like seen your mother praying at the foot of your bed it's really hard to be pissed off about like her rules <laughs> or like like uh, no I know my parents are here for me 100% in anything that I do mm-hmm. so at least it provided some form of perspective that's I guess the silver lining I guess that can happen yeah <laughs> my god so you grew up in Georgia I did in Augusta I did and my high school best friend was your college best friend yes thank you Catherine (laughs) love you yeah so how did you like it hated it yeah deeply so even where to begin Uh, so I grew up in a, a small kind of town right outside of Augusta which is famous solely for a golf tournament that celebrates exactly how misogynist and racist it is, uh, which is just an astounding place to grow up. I think it voted like two-thirds for uh, Donald Trump in the most recent presidential election. So that's kind of a microcosm of where I'm from, but I am a very feminist, liberal woman, uh, and I found my political views and, and kind of political moral compass in the seventh grade during the 2004 election. So I was deeply unpopular pretty much from the start. It did not help that my father was one of the few Jewish people in town and that my family didn't go to church. And I I mean, it's such a surreal experience. I'm sure you've experienced just the overt religiosity of the South. I'll never forget in like eighth grade, this girl Sarah slept over at my house and we had a good time. And then before she left, she like looked me in the eye and she's like, your daddy's going to go to hell because he's a Jew. And I was like, my father is my favorite person. I'm like a carbon copy of him. And the fact that she could just say that so flippantly, despite the fact that my dad had shown her nothing but hospitality, uh, was infuriating. How did you find your liberal feminist identity at such a young age? <sighs> I would like to say it was because uh, I just have this innate drive towards equality. <laughs> um, but actually, I was a real pain in the ass as a teenager. And because everyone around me was really conservative, it made me start to question that and be like, well, you not supporting gay rights is dumb. Like, I'm for all the gay rights. <laughs> and then obviously that kicked off a lot of rumors that I was a lesbian, um, which, you know, like looking back, it's like, why would I be so angry about being accused of being a lesbian when I was just four. Anyway, so it started out kind of as as a reaction to the knee-jerk conservatism that I saw around me and in my peers. And the more that I got into history and international politics and model United Nations, uh, the more it just became clear to me that I was going to be a very socially liberal person. And then when I got to 
college um, and started studying economics, I was like, wow, like, like a large state of funding uh, all of these great programs in terms of infrastructure and social programs. Like, that's the type of society I want to live in. And it's it's kind of embarrassing, but my my staunch feminism was a kind of a later development. Rebecca Traister, I think, wrote a really cool piece on this about like late breaking feminism. And that was exactly my experience where I got into the workforce after being, you know, like this incredibly high achieving, high strong college student where, you know, in my family, which is a very crude family, we have this joke, um, you know, I'm Hillary Matfis, shit just goes my way. And that's generally how things were. Like, things went my way. I got into the five-year BAMA program. I kept my scholarship, um, which was GPA contingent. Everything that I was looking for happened to me. And then I got into the workforce and experienced what it was like to be, you know, a young woman working in national security and defense issues and to see kind of the the male prerogative vaulted and then also considered to be the default and how frustrating that was. Um, and I remember overhearing in the office uh, a research assistant for one of our, our senior fellows was talking about how she wanted to go do field work. And this was after my third trip to Nigeria. And she said, oh, yeah, I'd love to do, you know, field work like what Hillary's doing. And one of the other senior researchers in the office said, oh, well, you're about to get married. You don't want to do field work. You want to stay home and have kids. The girl said, like, well, Hillary does field work. And this guy responds like, oh, but she'd never have kids. And it was like, how is it that, like, your default assumption that I am barren is what makes me qualified to do this job. Like, that is asinine. And so it's really my exposure to all of the vestiges of workplace misogyny and the fact that there are just too many glass ceilings in the workforce for women still, despite the fact that we're outpacing male graduation rates in, in colleges and uh, even certain graduate degrees. Once we enter the workforce, it's not a meritocracy. Um, and that was really infuriating, especially because, like, frankly, a lot of men in my field are real dumb. <laughs> and it's, it's really frustrating to, to hear them, you know, spin this absolute nonsense and everyone kind of nod. Like, well, that seems, that seems totally reasonable. Thanks, Chet. <laughs> and I gotta say, like, for people who can't see you, you are a, you're a small woman. You are not tall. You're no. little, you are pretty, you have like a nice little face, you're young. I got to imagine that you go into these meetings with these big burly military types and like foreign policy people and they assume that you're somebody's daughter. Yeah. If the Europeans are around, they assume I'm a mistress. Um, no, it's it's absolutely become the norm for me to be the youngest and at times like most female person in the room uh, and it's really intimidating but you kind of have to just like put your head down and and accept that you have a right to be there and that more women should have the right to be at that table and it really forces me to know my shit frontwards and backwards and so you know the field work that I've been doing has taken me to Tanzania, Ethiopia, Rwanda, and Nigeria, Nigeria most extensively for this book project and for uh, the Nigeria Social Violence Project and a project I was working on at the Center for Complex Operations. 
And it's really interesting to talk to a lot of the folks, you know, in the Pentagon or the U.S. government who have gone to Nigeria, but they'll stay in the capital, Abuja, and they won't really venture north. And, you know, I've been lucky that I have been able to circumvent some of the travel restrictions on Americans uh, that prevent people from going north. And I've been able to, to get university-funded trips and self-funded trips uh, that I pay for through freelancing and, and contract work that allow me to actually get to where the crisis is. And so in these trips, I've gone to, you know, my degree, which is the heart of the crisis, Yola, um, Mubi, uh, a number of other communities throughout the north. And it's really hard for, you know, even the biggest, burliest of military guys to dismiss what I'm saying because he wasn't allowed to leave Abuja uh, and he had to go with a military escort. And that's not how you get people to talk to you. That's not how you can engage with folks. And so I, I think my personality is not one that naturally embraces femininity and softness. But when I was doing field work in the Northeast, that was actually such an incredible benefit. Um, and so I, I when I travel, I pretend to be married, and I usually wear this cheap little fake wedding band, and I'll have a couple pictures on my phone of me with just one of my guy friends, and I can show that as my husband if anyone asks. But being able to talk to, to women, particularly those impacted by crisis, about, you know, what was your husband like? Tell me about your home. Um, and chatting about, you know, their weddings and what it was like to raise their children, you know, before Boko Haram, during Boko Haram, and now in this camp— it's an incredible benefit to not be seen as a threatening force, to be able to go in as a, as a small, young woman and to bond over, you know, quote unquote, womanly things gave me access to information that other people just either weren't interested in or physically could not get because they put between themselves and the people that they're trying to understand and help these false divisions based on gender or nationality um, or even, you know, who is militarized and who isn't. How do you make yourself be brave when you're going into these, either in a in a big meeting with a lot of big burly men <laughs> or when you're going into, you know, a foreign place where you don't really know anybody or understand the culture very well? Uh, late night freakouts, I think, are uh, an old standby. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes from knowing that failure is very much bounded in my situation um, and thinking through what is the worst case scenario. So if I make an ass out of myself in a meeting, that's okay. There's a lot more meetings. If it continues to be a pattern, we'll have to reassess. But like everyone has a couple missteps. In terms of travel, you know, I always have enough in my bank account that worst case scenario, I can buy a ticket home. Uh, and I'm incredible. That is a privileged position to be in, and I fully recognize that. But understanding, you know, kind of what is the worst that can happen, and can I accept the worst case scenario? It certainly helps when you're about to travel to a war zone, and the worst case scenario is uh, death. It does not help. Um, so, in my family, we have this saying: uh, "Just hit send," which came about because I applied to 16 colleges in one day in a like nine-hour Starbucks writing spree with my dad. And anytime I would freak out, I'd be like, oh, dad, what if I don't get into college? Like, Because college was my way out of Georgia. I very much wanted to leave Georgia. And his response would always be like, just hit send. Like, you can 
spend all of this time editing and re-editing to get that, you know, spend an hour to increase quality by 1%, or you can just hit send and accept that it's not perfect, but it's done. And once you've put yourself out there, that's the opening of the door that really matters. And so I just try and remind myself of that, like just hit send. You just have to take that first step and then see what doors open up because you had the ability to just put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Well, because so many opportunities come from smaller opportunities before them. Absolutely. You know, The way I got my book contract, I actually was telling a friend about this this morning, and I didn't realize how many small decisions led up to it. There's a, a website, AfricanArguments.org. Um, I always type in .com and I get a bad URL. But they do this incredible work having scholars interpret uh, either their academic work for a more general audience or analyzing events in sub-Saharan Africa um, through an academic lens but without all of the jargon. And I had written for them a handful of times, and I had read a number of the books in the African Argument series with Zed Publishers, and I was kind of staring down the uh, the barrel of unemployment uh, at the end of my contract. And I thought, you know, I should reach out to my editor at African Arguments. He seemed like a nice guy. I wonder who I should get in touch with to write this book. Because I, I think the gender aspect of Boko Haram has been underexplored. We all know about the Chibok girls, but what about the thousands of other women that have been abducted and the millions of other women that have been displaced? And so it you know, started out with that one email to my editor saying, hey, would you mind putting me in touch? And then the editors for the book series said, great, we just need you to put together a proposal. And it was all of these kind of little things. And I put together a proposal. They told me they didn't like it. And so I reworked it and sent it back. And then they said, great, yeah, okay. And I actually got word that they accepted the book proposal while I was in my degree conducting the last round of field work for it. And that was a relief because otherwise that would have been a not a waste of a trip, but uh, probably a little bit strange to take your vacation days to go to Northeast Nigeria. And then after that, even, it was just I blocked out into, I think I started with six sections and said, like, what is each aspect that I have to address of this crisis uh, and the gender aspect? And then just taking it in these small little chunks um, in terms of, great, in 20 pages, I need the reader to understand what Boko Haram is, where it came from, and its historical evolution since its founding in, like, 2002. Great. And once that's done, we can move on to the next section. So, you know, I had this great Spanish teacher in high school who would say, like, how do you eat an elephant? Bite by bite. <laughs> um, and that's that's very much how it is, though, where it's, like, it's everything I feel like these days starts with an email and then a couple more emails where you're just writing to follow up on but it opens up these really cool opportunities. But it's it's so hard sometimes to put yourself out there. And I think especially as young women where there aren't a lot of social institutions or social norms that say like, yeah, put yourself out there. Like assert that you are the one qualified to do this, to say this, to produce this. And it's hard to generate the self-confidence to say like, yeah, I am that person. I should be that person. You know, give me the opportunity. Yeah, it's you walked us through how you pitched and wrote a book <laughs> in such a matter of fact way. And I'm like, holy crap, like how I still don't understand. Like I sat next to you in coffee shops this whole past year where you were like <laughs> writing and editing this book and it just seemed so casual. 
It is like shocking how casual it's been. I keep waiting for someone to step in and be like, I'm sorry, you know you didn't do this correctly, right? Like, I think we feel like so many things should be a bit more dramatic than they are. Like, I just accepted this job in Nigeria. And again, it wasn't a big dramatic moment. It was, I met the director of a think tank when she was a fellow at the Wilson Center, and then we stayed in touch. And I sent her an email after I read the government's redevelopment plan for the Northeast, this like 800-page behemoth of a document, and I sent her a note saying, this is really bad. <laughs> um, like, are you guys doing anything on this? The government thinks that, you know, you're going to have a famine that's affecting 14 million people, a crisis that's displaced close to 3 million, totally resolved within five years, including, you know, repatriation and resettlement of the displaced populations. You're, you're out of your mind, just statistically. Like, the International Displacement Monitoring Center estimates that the average length of displacement in sub-Saharan Africa is 10 years. And that's starting the clock at the end of the crisis. And this is a crisis that is ongoing. Like, this is a bad plan. But so I, I geeked out and sent her a note, like, a die out. Like, we have to fix this. This is really bad. And she sent me a note back saying, oh, you know, you're right. This is bad. Uh, we're also hiring a senior program officer to work on this. Do you want to come work with us? And I was like, wow, this friendship with a woman that I respect immensely and my inability to stop reading badly written, poorly planned government documents has just resulted in an opportunity that I had been kind of having on the, the back burner, an idea that I had been playing with in my mind for about a year now. And it's, it's really exciting, but it's certainly not dramatic, which I don't know, maybe I watched like way too many 90s teen movies and rom-coms, but I keep expecting there to be a speech or a moment <laughs> and instead it's just like you know you like you get an email and you nod your head and you're like that's pretty cool like i like that i'm gonna i'm gonna so text someone happening yeah like cool i gotta find a place to live in nigeria like ooh, need to get my visa like there's there's not a lot of drama in real life and mm -hmm. i guess that that's good it's always really shocking and also a little bit jarring to me when these really big life moments happen and the moment is like what movies are made out of and people write songs about and books about and you know walking across the stage at graduation I walked across it but I was also like high on a ton of pain meds because <laughs> I was so sick and like my the muscles in my neck were so tense I couldn't turn my head and like now it's over you know it's crazy how like these things are happening in your life that are defining what your life is going to be about. And, like, they're just chill. They're just happening. Yeah, I mean, after <laughs> I interviewed women who had joined Boko Haram voluntarily, I was, like, one, so protective of my notebook that I wasn't going to let it out of my sight. And then, two, the rest of the night, I got such bad, like, food poisoning and dehydration that I was just vomiting the entire night in my hotel room with a broken AC. Like... On the one hand, there is this, like, transcendent moment of, like, as I'm doing these interviews, I'm like, this is what the book is made of. Like, this is phenomenal. And really giving me insight into the insurgency and these women's motivations and what life is like in remote communities in northeastern Nigeria. And then, you know, like, three hours later, I was like, I just want my mother to hand me the biggest bottle of Pepto-Bismol <laughs> and, like, braid my hair. <laughs> um, and it's... 
it's a really weird duality. And there's there wasn't even anything dramatic about, like, the food poisoning. Because anytime you travel, you're like, well, this will happen at some point. Like, good thing I have my rehydration salts with me. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. I would very much like if, like, Aaron Sorkin would script a day of my life. Or, like, a Walt Disneyfication. But it's just, you know, doing the thing until another cool thing comes along. <laughs> exactly. I am still fixated on this idea that you just turned 25 and 30 is kind of like when you're expecting something to happen to you. And so you're trying to squeeze everything in before then. It reminds me of Hamilton. I still haven't heard listened to it. I know, I know, I know. Okay, well, there's I a know whole song where they're like, how do you write like you're running out of time? And it's all about how he's like just constantly working and produces an, an amazing amount of work because yeah I don't know he's he's like terrified of death and I really identify with that I I think about death probably every day yeah um, and I don't I don't know how common that is but like do you think that this is such a huge question but I'm like I'm wondering do you think that the work that you do is in any way motivated by the fact that you want to leave something behind when you're not here I mean, I, I think so. I'm lucky enough that I found my passion early. And it's very weird to say, like, security and governance in sub-Saharan Africa is my passion as, like, a very white girl. Um, but it really is. And I, I identified that early on. And so part of it is I just naturally am kind of drawn towards this field. But the the pace at which I like to work, I think is very much motivated by, like, Something just has to stick and stay around. Um, and so my musical references are, like, very out of date. But have you listened to the Rent soundtrack? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, also, uh, I feel like I've kept my, like, lewdness to a minimum here. Uh, but anyone that knows me knows I have a very blue sense of humor. And I think a lot of this comes from the fact that uh, my mom took me to see Rent when I was in kindergarten which, for those of you who don't know, is a mid-1990s uh, rock opera about a bunch of artists living in New York um, dealing with the AIDS epidemic. But it's it's really funny, and there's a lot of sex scenes and inappropriate humor, which is, like, kind of my life. <laughs> um, but there's this incredible song that my mom fell in love with when she was going through her diagnostic process and that I listen to a lot, and I, I think the name is Will I, but the lyrics are, um, will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? Will I wake tomorrow from this nightmare? And it's it's all of these voices kind of overlaid, and it's a really beautiful sentiment about as your body betrays you, will you lose human dignity? And I think anyone that's been sick knows what it's like to feel just fundamentally undignified and trying to, like, snatch that back from the jaws of mortality is very hard. Um, and so when I was hospitalized when I was 15, it was probably the least dignified I've ever been. They had me on, like, every antibiotic known to man, which then resulted in me getting, like, additional infections uh, because everything was so suppressed. And, you know, it, it was tough I got to college my doctors had wanted me to not leave to go to college which was a fight in and of itself 
But freshman year, I got so sick and was so immunocompromised that I got a yeast infection in my mouth. Yeah. Yep. It's called oral thrush. Ew. Oh, it's disgusting. And so I'm betrayed by my body. I, like, opened my mouth, and it looks like your tongue is, like, white and covered in fur. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the health and wellness center. And, you know, I was dating this guy and was trying to, like, play it off. And he didn't want to kiss me. And I was like, it's not contagious. And, like, feeling just so undignified and out of control. And then I got to the health and wellness center. And they're like, we need to test you for AIDS. And I hadn't had sex and was not an IV drug user. And so it was, like, this this really frustrating moment of, like, not only is my body unresponsive, but, like, the health institutions are unresponsive, and I just want to feel better. And it was uh, it was really bad. But I dealt with it through humor and a lot of text messages of the photo of like photos of my like white caked mouth <laughs> to friends. Ew. Usually preceded by like want to see something disgusting, Ew. and then not waiting for the response. That yeah, it's so gross. <laughs> I hung out with a lot of guys, um, including, you know, I sent it to my dad, and he was like, that's fucking gross. Go to a hospital. But I think if you, like, can't laugh at how horrifying the human body can be, then it's just going to beat you, mm-hmm. and that sucks. I don't like losing. And you also beat it by just, like, working really, really, really hard and doing all of the things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, – it's a balance. Like, you have to manage – There are days where, like, if I'm really sick and the brain fog is just cutting off my ability to come up with really incisive ideas or analysis, that's going to be an edit and footnote day. And that's, you know, we all know our work employs different skill sets that we have. uh, And there's always kind of a more mentally or emotionally taxing part of our work. And I just save that for the days where I feel 100%. And on the days where... I'm feeling crummy and can't think straight. I'm probably going to just catch up with the news and then come up with wouldn't it be cool if ideas uh, and do all of the kind of easy editing stuff that otherwise, you know, you're wasting your potential on if you're feeling 100% and doing it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for talking to me. No, thanks for having me on. <laughs> And that was the episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like listening to the LadyCast, you should subscribe and rate it on iTunes. You can follow the LadyCast on Instagram and Twitter at the LadyCast. You can follow me on the same places at Alex Laughs. Um, the website is theladycast.com. Support the LadyCast on Patreon. Become a recurring supporter. Patreon.com slash the LadyCast if you enjoy this work. Uh, You can also buy a zine about how to create a podcast. You can find that on my website, my personal website at alexlaughs.com. Thank you to Sarah Lawrence for designing the logo and to JJ Posway for writing the theme music. All right, I'll talk to you guys soon. In the meantime, go out and do the thing. Bye.